Hi, everybody. This podcast is recorded in a house with pets. I can see at least two of them with a suspected third somewhere in the room, and that does not include the teenager upstairs or the chickens outside who are just sort of chill because it's late in the day and it's kind of cool outside, and so they're starting to get into their settle-down-for-sleep routine. But noises happen. That's the important thing to note here. Noises happen, so don't be surprised if a dog barks or a cat causes damage in the middle of the recording. Or if I scream because the hound who is currently in my lap decides to climb farther into my lap and knock me over. Uh, is it Lacey? Or, it's or, Lacey. It's Lacey? Yeah, so she'll do that. The other thing to mention at this juncture is we swear. We swear. Loudly and with gusto. Uh, passionately. And while we aren't going to cover anything explicit or dirty or of an adult nature, we're grown-ups using grown-up language. And as such... Grown-up metaphors. Grown-up metaphors. And as such, we have to mark this as explicit in iTunes because they don't have something between clean and explicit. If this were a movie in the U.S., it would be rated about PG-13. If it were... A TV series, it would be like a Y14. So parental guidance suggested just to make sure we don't break somebody's brain or, or offend or whatever. But you've it's been warned. A word that they somehow did not learn. Yes, from their peers, which is how it usually happens. That's how I learned. Indeed. Welcome to Productivity Alchemy episode 68. Woo! And this is a great episode, I hope. I have a phenomenal interview later on that we had to do twice because here's that swearing I was talking about. I fucked up on the first take. I sat down and we did the whole interview and it was amazing and it was great. And then I realized when I went to hit stop, I realized that I had not actually hit record at the beginning, but, um, the, uh, the person, he was a great sport about it. We went, we redid the whole thing right away and it's still a fantastic interview, and we will get to that in a little bit. The uh, big thing, I think, for this past week for me is that I was at All Things Open for two days. The local, which is becoming more than local, really, but it, it's the local tech and open source, source conference. But they are looking at maybe having around 5,000 attendees next year wow. in downtown Raleigh. Yeah, six, it was their sixth year. They broke 4,000 this year. So it's really exciting to see how it's, because I've been going since there were like 500 of us. We didn't even take up an entire floor of the convention center. And now I expect in another two years, the entire convention center, including spaces that we, that it hasn't been using in the past will be used. So it's, it's really a thrilling, thrilling time. And there's a lot of good tracks. There were uh, talks on personal branding and on branding your open source project. And I skipped all of those because I looked at a friend of mine and said, oh, I'm thinking about going to this this talk on brand on, on a personal brand. Do you, do you think? And they're like, you have your brand, dude. You have your brand. Um, <laughs> chickens, mostly. Chickens, at chickens this, and tattoos. Ch chickens and tattoos at this point, and the, the occasional attitude or whatever. Uh, <laughs> we also, uh, but there was a, a great talk on using PowerShell. My friend uh, Bruce had come into town to hang out. He's someone who writes PowerShell at Microsoft for a living. Didn't he, wasn't he one of the originators? Yeah, he's one of the co-inventors. All right, let's, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah, Bruce. And uh, so we didn't actually sit and heckle or snark at the guy because the talk was <laughs> really good. And he was really excited to, to, to meet Bruce and talk to Bruce while we were there. 
fantastic stuff. Um, PowerShell, for those who don't know, is now open source. It runs on Linux, it runs on Mac and Windows, and it's a really powerful tool that I'm starting to learn more about because I can actually use it now. It's not just my Windows thing. And then there were the usual talks on different programming languages. I sat in on one where I built an app while in the in the toolkit, um, the Electron toolkit, while he was giving the presentation, which was kind of cool that I could walk in, I could listen to the first like half hour of a of a hour of presentation, and in that last half hour while he was talking about, oh, you can add on this for database, or you can add on that to do these app things, I actually wrote an app. Even if it was a little hello world, just simple thing, I did it right there on, on site. And they're, they've got all sorts of coding tutorials that they do, and you should check it out. It'll be October next year. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes. What's it called? All Things Open. Oh, oh, oh no, I meant the app thing. That, oh, the, the, the app thing? No, it, it's uh, Electron JS. Okay, you didn't say that. Yeah, I yeah. said it was an Electron app, but uh, no, I'm going to link to All Things Open in the show notes. Yes. I'm just saying if people are interested in building mm-hmm. a Hello World app based on the, cause the talk, you should you should. Yeah, the, I'll, uh, I'm not going to push the source code up because it's really, yeah. but there, there are whole lots of examples out there, and it's really good. And that hissing you may or may not hear in the background is our instant pot coming up to pressure. We have joined the cult. Oh, I think we have joined the cult, and... oh. It's such a cult. And yet, are you happy to be in that cult? Uh, I have no opinion yet. You've made one dish. It was an amazing dish. Yes. But I won't swear that wasn't because you followed the recipe. Well, I'm, I'm following the recipe again. Okay, good. We aren't, we aren't, I'm not in the improv, to the improv stage of cooking with this yet. And even if I do improv some, it'll be things like this is a Hawaii, this is a Hawaiian style cooking method. But it's basically onions, garlic, water, salt, and pork. And I feel like that that isn't capturing the spirit of a Hawaiian message, of a Hawaiian dish. And so I'm like, next time, next time, if we like this this way, next time I might throw some pineapple in with it. I thought there was pineapple with it. There isn't pineapple with it. Then why did you buy a thing of pineapple? The, that's for the side dish. Oh. Yeah. I will be roasting. I will be roasting pineapple, as well as braising cabbage for the side dish, because they say recommended is uh, braised cabbage or roasted peppers and pineapple. Interesting. So I'm gonna do some roasting, and I'm gonna do some cab braise some cabbage because I like. I'm still cabbage. skeptical of the instant pot cult, but if it involves Kevin using the thing to cook, then I'm not complaining. And the thing I like about it is that things that would normally take me you know, two hours of babysitting or, or in the case of this thing, like six, eight hours of cooking, I can do an hour and a half, two hours. So we'll see. We'll see if, if usage <laughs> continues once you have a job and are no longer cooking for joy. Right. Uh, and it's nice to be cooking for joy. Uh, and that was the other thing at All Things Open, by the way, is I spent a lot of time talking to people about jobs. Uh, most of it was networking. Some of it was, you know, here are companies. Let's see what they've got. Let's see what they do. Let's see if they're the kind of place I want to work. But when I was talking to friends, because there's there's a lot of hallway con, oh always with it, uh, and I know I want to you know a lot of the people who've been around both the All Things Open event, but also the tech scene in Raleigh, uh, you know I know a lot of them just from over time, and a lot of it came down to distilling what am I looking for, because that's the first thing they're like, well, what do you do, and what I do and what I'm looking for are not necessarily the same thing, and I think that's important for us to sit down and think about when we're evaluating other things, you know, uh, we talk about evaluating, like go through and make sure the system you're using to keep track of your organization or whatever is working for you. Right. 
And if it isn't, maybe you need to tune it. Maybe you need to change it up a little bit. Maybe you need to try something new. And I think the same thing can be said for... For many creative endeavors. Yeah. I mean, I could be doing... I could... What can I do? I can do commissions. Right. But I don't want to live doing commissions. Right. You do them sometimes, like in an event or a special occasion or when a friend comes to you and say, here's this thing I kind of want to do. Can you help me out? When your husband comes up to you and say, hey, can you help me create a logo for this podcast I'm thinking about doing? For example. For example. But on the other side, there is this whole kind of idea with our work that we should get it. I mean, and this is this is stuck in, from the 1800s and the Protestant work ethic and all that crap in that we get a job and you don't have to like it. You don't have to love it. You don't have to be happy with it. You get a job, you get money, and then you you work for your day, you come home, and if you're going to do something that makes you happy, you do it in that time period when you're not working or asleep. And, oh, by the way, here's all the other obligations that, you know, society puts down on you. I would say there is a sort of dark flip side to to what you're getting at though yeah there is because absolutely uh the the sort of opposite of that is people saying do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life and that's toxic bullshit yeah because i love what i do i work hard oh yeah and and but the and the other thing is maybe what you love is latch hook rugs i actually kind of like making latch hook rugs from the you know i did it when i was a kid i find it restful I haven't done it in forever, but I'd do it again. Um, the whole idea around that, though, is maybe I love that. Well, I can't make a living at that. I have to eat. Well, and also, if you could make a living at it, you wouldn't necessarily want to. If Hobbies you love do not need to be monetized. Right. In fact, I have a bad habit of monetizing my hobbies mm-hmm. and have done so multiple times. So I took up gardening because there's no damn way I can make money on gardening. Not really. And yeah, unless I get like a fruit stand, it's not going to happen. And honestly, chickens are a hobby. Yes. They're livestock, uh, but they're a hobby and they're not producing enough eggs or anything for me to be able to ever make money on them. And that's fine. Podcasting is a hobby. We don't actually, I mean, we have income from it, but it's not a significant amount. Well, to... I mean, it's it's a pretty good chunk. Uh, the Patreon is nothing to sneeze at, but. But yeah, I mean, it's not. I, we're, we can't live on it. Yeah, we're losing money doing it, and that's fine. We uh, we do it out of love. At least I do it out of love. I don't think we're really losing money well, doing it. Yeah. I mean, if you count the, the hours that we spend doing it and right. work in our, our finances or whatnot, you know, how yeah. much are we cost an hour, then yeah, totally we, oh, yeah, we're, yeah. we're losing money. But mm-hmm. uh, in I the Patreon, more comes in than we spend on podcasting, but it's... I mean, but that also, but that also includes that that Patreon is an exclusive to podcasting, right? There's also the books. And there's also the books. There's the art. There's the whatnot that goes yeah. with it. So, speaking of books, yes, I I have a scheduling issue coming up. So, so you were telling me earlier, and which is that I have a novel due mm-hmm. in March. Oh crap! Now I realize. Hey, keep talking. Keep talking. Is... I gotta go do a thing. Okay. <laughs> I'm a moron. The Instant Pot is going to kill him. And I'm going to be very sad. Uh, there. Did you like, see- it's hissing an awful lot with steam. 
And then I'm realizing I didn't flip the little thing too too closed, so it wasn't building pressure. Okay. D- does it need more water added? No, it'll be fine. Okay. Uh, I have a book. Do I? I have sold a book. So mm-hmm. yay! Yay! It is due in March. Mm-hmm. Yay! It needs to be about ninety thousand words long, and what I have written is about twenty some thousand words. So yep. I need to get around sixty five thousand words done. Mm-hmm. By March. Yep. Okay. No big deal. Except that I also have this other thing that I can't really get into too much right now, but I need another 25,000 words done on that by February. So uh, it works out to about 90,000 words that I need to get done in the next four months. Ish. Yeah. Four ish months. And. I I sat down and did the math, and it comes down to at least through February, I need to get six thousand words done a week on average. On average, okay. Uh, my standard mm-hmm. is four thousand a week. Okay. I often do more. Mm-hmm. A twenty thousand word month is not bad, but I am not one of those people who are like I write five thousand words a day. No, I write a thousand words a day. They're good words. I get to keep 99% of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, uh, I write very clean first drafts, but uh, this is a lot of word count. It is. It and is. I have to, I can't just arrange it as I know I will get 1,500 words done a day because even though I have a fairly ferocious work ethic as these things go... Uh, some days I will get 200 words done and be like, that is all that is coming out today. Right. Some days yeah. I will get 3,000 words done, and th- those days are great, but they don't, I, you know, it's, do I have enough of those to make up for the 200-word days? I don't know. We're going to find out. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the, the statement I made earlier that you, I... You didn't look at me with murder, but you sort of gave me this look that says, are you an idiot? Yes. You said, well, that's uh, uh, like a thousand words a day for 94 days. Yeah. Yeah. And on the one hand, that is purely a manager thought. That is purely that empirical, well, we, you know, if you have, if you can do X amount of day and you know you can do X amount of day, then here's how many days it'll take. But. Right, but, but that's not how humans work. Right, and there is there is a book out there called, um, or there's I don't think maybe it's not a book. I'll I'll check on it. But there's this concept of the manager schedule versus the maker schedule. And when we ta- when when you're doing project management or when you're trying to to organize these things, a lot of times it's really easy to just apply math and say, okay, all I have to do is X every day for X number of days, and it's done without any consideration. For the idea that you're not going to do X every single day. You don't think in averages, you think in absolutes. Project managers sort of run into this all the time. They're like, how long will this take? Well, it'll take two days. Never tell a project manager it'll be two days if it is really going to take two days. You tell them four. That gives you, because everybody's adding buffer, right? Right. If it's going to take you two days understand that there's a good chance, like I always double it because I know somewhere in there, there's going to be an interruption. There's going to be a problem. There's going to be something that's going to take up that extra time. And speaking of interruptions and problems, Mm -hmm. uh, as of Friday, my stepfather will be going into hospice, most likely. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there's a really solid chance 
that within a week or two, and I mean, we're we're down to the wire. The doctor, right. like two weeks ago, was like, "You have a few weeks at most." So, yeah. uh, we're I, just astounded this, he made it this long, dude. Yeah, some people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's an excellent chance that I will suddenly be in the funeral arrangement business right. and not the making word count business. Now, fortunately, to a certain extent, I can do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who can't. This is not yes. a slam or a, a statement on my my skills. I am – if I am very – Unhappy, I am capable of working very hard because what I do is set in a different world. And so mm-hmm. I can go write that thing and not have to think about it. Um, right. And sometimes right, right. if it's completely miserable, uh, I can go play a video game and that's as much as I'm going to get done. Mm-hmm. Things are, things are very individual. Right. So, and knowing that, in fact, uh, my original deadline for the thing due in March was in January. And I said, that's a little close. Can we bump it out? Uh, because while I could have pulled that off uh, with with a lot of grief, yeah. and it is my nature to be like to not go, not to go. Can we push it out? But to go, I will work harder. Boxer the horse is my my. Patrol. Yes, exactly. But uh, I. I know this is going to happen. I know even with the best of intentions, that's going to throw stuff off. So I pushed it out. Thank God. So I only have to do 6,000 words a day instead of like, or 6,000 words a week instead of like eight. Right. And, um, you know, life happens. It may come down. I may be like, even, even I can't pull this out. You're going to need to, mm-hmm. to get and there's, more time. But, there's, you know, and the human part of this, no matter what the situation, whether it's a corporate job, well, generally, whether it's a corporate job, unless you have a really bad boss, uh, whether it's a creative job, when you're, you know, you're under contract, something like that, is you say, look, I'm going to need more time because this life event happened and is causing this much delay. If you give them enough warning. Oh, yeah. Then it's great. And there's something that Damien, who is my interview, and I talk about. Uh, in a little more detail, which is the Watermelon Project. We should go listen to that thing about the Watermelon Project. We should, and we'll do that. I just have to clarify one point. I We were talking about the difference between bike shedding and yak shaving in the interview, and I think I got my definitions wrong. Okay. Right? Bike shedding is this situation you do when you're programming or you're discussing things where you get hung up on a little detail. And it's derailing the entire project because, you know, I, I think it comes out of England. Uh, I was reading and they said that, you know, they were designing a nuclear plant, but they were hung up on what color to paint the bike shed. Right. They couldn't move forward until they decided on what color to paint the bike shed. So bike shedding. The other one is yak shaving, which is possibly, you know, the last step in a long, detailed process that you may or may not need to do. But, you know, when you get there you know that you're 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 almost done. At least that's the one definition. Usually I think of it as more it's a task that you're doing because you can, not because you need to. You're shaving the yak. And the term actually came out of yes, the Ren and Stimpy episode. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh it's a thing. And these are these are programming terms we use. And and I'm sure when I'm even if I'm wrong about yak shaving, because I think that's the one I'm wrong most on, people are going to 
comment and tell me how wrong I am, and I will be issuing corrections later, so that's fine. But in the meantime, here is Damien Ryan, who I spoke to a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'll have that interview with him right after this. Also, you shear reacts. Really? Shear, not shave. Yeah, they're, they're, you shear their, their, yeah. Let's go to the interview. Hi, folks. I am here with listener Damien Ryan, and Damien is a release manager for a tech company, and we're going to talk about how Damien keeps uh, not just himself organized, but the people who he's ultimately responsible to organized. Uh, Damien, can you do a better job of introducing yourself and tell us, uh, telling us about what you do? Um, I can try. I'm not sure. Um. So release management, is, it's a weird thing. Um, a lot of people might have, you know, might know about things like Scrum Masters and you've got the general bosses and all of that. A release manager is someone who can be the person who looks after Jenkins and just writes bill scripts. Or it can be someone who's essentially responsible for the process of getting something built from the time someone has an idea all the way through to it going into the customer's hands. Yeah, I think uh, I think in our, our pre-discussion you called it um, cat herding for engineering, QA, and dev, but not uh, but pretty, real pretty real cats are easier. Yeah, yeah. Bur- burlap burlap sack optional. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, <laughs> um, so in all of that, how do you keep yourself and your team organized? So the big thing with keeping. Um, the team organized is making work visible and making sure everyone knows what they're doing, where they're doing it and, and how and why. And we use several tools for this, but the, the main one is Utrecht mm-hmm. and, and Utrecht it's like Jira. It's like all of these things. They're essentially ticketing systems that are built up to be kind of full featured ways of working tools and project management tools. Mm-hmm. Um, how we use Utrecht then is we have little piece. Uh, we have all the pieces of work, and any piece of work you're gonna do has to be in Utrecht mm-hmm. as a ticket. And a ticket is a description of the work to be done with some meta information about like who does it, where it's done, when it's for, what customer might be for, and all of these can then be arranged on what's called a kanban, mm-hmm. which is essentially a board with all of these tickets in. And their various stages, right? And and for those at home uh, who haven't seen a Kanban board before, uh, there was uh, it comes out of a Japanese manufacturing process. It's actually a Japanese term, uh, but you have a board with um, multiple columns. Uh, you know, here's there's a column for things you need to do, things you're doing, things that are done, and 
sometimes you'll you'll add other things like here's the big pile of the backlog of all the things you want to do someday and you might have a a, a space for QA in there in between done and in the customer you know, release the customer and as you as you uh do things as through each stage you you move it column to column um so that you're kind of always aware of what's left to be done what's been done and what's actually being done at this moment uh the my favorite one of my favorite apps for that out excuse me outside of jira is an app called trello which is designed around kanban boards um and i think they're now owned by atlassian so uh i'm i'm hoping that uh trello doesn't someday become jira light um as much as in my last job I was longing for Jira, I love to hate Jira, but uh, you know things like it and Utrack are really good at what they do, and when you don't have them, if you're used to them, you can really miss them. I mean, to be honest, all of these tools are equally good and bad, mm-hmm. and I kind of think that the only good tool is one you don't have to use anymore. So as you're using the new one, you start longing for the old one. Uh, there are a couple tools I will never long for again. Honestly, um, we used Zoho Projects with the last one, and it was so very clunky and didn't integrate with anything that uh, if someone comes to me and says, we want to go to Zoho Projects, I'm going to be like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to take a note of that one, because I've been lucky so far, and and I'm even including um, Team City Foundation server in there. And and that's the thing. The the biggest thing I've found with things like um, Jira or Team City or... um, uh, what's the the wiki ish thing? Um, SharePoint, right? Is the the tools themselves? Everybody says the tools suck nine times out of ten. It's how the tool was implemented. It's not the tool itself. It's how the company or how the person is using it that that really sucks. Because the tool isn't necessarily bad. You may just be either using it wrong or trying to make it do too much or something like that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, all of these things are. So there's a thing called Conway's Law. Oh, God. And it's it's about software development and that any piece of software you make tends to resemble the team that made it and the politics that go around it. Right. So, like, for instance, once I worked in a place where the development team and the DP team didn't talk to each other, couldn't talk to each other. So they actually went off and developed their own database oh. just to not have to talk to the other guys. That's... That's um, that's one of my favorites. The other one is um, uh, JWZ's law. Uh, any program significantly advanced is not done until it can send and receive email. <laughs> uh, that that came out of uh, yeah. He was he was part of the original Nova um, uh, Netscape navigator mm-hmm. crew and uh, was uh, I think one of the people who's not happy that Netscape started to in- integrated an email client at the time. So. Yeah, I remember when it turned into Netscape Navigator and yeah, the world imploded. It was not a good time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm still, I'm still touch and go with Firefox now. So I don't know. Uh, and we could, we could go into the browser wars, but uh, I don't know if anyone wants to to listen to to that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, using Kanban and breaking work up and. Um, uh, full disclosure, folks, this is the second time we've done this interview today because I forgot to hit record. So I've got a whole bunch of notes from the last time as prompts. 
and uh, and and Damien is being very gracious in doing this like a second time, taking a, a, a after discussing this for an hour, coming back and talking and just doing it all over again. Um, but um, one of the things we had talked about is that you use now these are the things you use for your team. And you're using it to break things down into smaller pieces, but that your personal organization is very different. Yeah. So one thing I struggle with, especially now, is that there's so much going on. So we we usually get through about a a thousand of these tickets a month. Um, That's far too much to kind of keep in my head at one time. So spend a lot of time paging things in and out Um, to avoid doing that. Uh, try to chunk all of this work up into bigger things that kind of represent uh, maybe 100 or 200 tickets. So what we do is, yes, we've all these small things that say this is work to be done. Above that, mm-hmm. we've got things uh, I call feature trackers only because one of the religious wars in the agile space and all of this is what constitutes an epic. Right. And generally... An epic is a piece of work that's going to take longer than two weeks or a sprint. Mm-hmm. But what it really means is this thing is so big, we can't break it down. What to be what to be used to represent it? So these things, feature trackers, it will be something like, you know, do this big feature. Um, and that will be something I use another ticket, which would link to all of the smaller tickets. And that would be in my head. That would be the, the representative there. So I can move those things around like chess pieces and not have to try to get lost in no, seven or eight hundred tickets that go on. And and really, the funny thing is that when you when you look at agile in the in the pure sense, like the the original agile manifesto actually really had nothing to say about how to break up work, or any of this infrastructure framework that was built around it. No, I mean a lot of this stuff actually comes from Kent Beck's work on XP. Mm-hmm. which happened long before the manifesto was written. Yeah. We're, we're talking, uh, what, early 2000s now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and even then, as um, I saw um, uh, Andrew Hunt, uh, who co-wrote the Pragmatic Programmer, one of the original signers of the Agile Manifesto, um, I, I saw him speak, and he said, you know, one of the things is that, the, that Agile is, is meant to be adaptable. And so a lot of these things, like here's this very formal scrum thing, you're, it's meant to be adaptable for people to be able to use it, not here is here is what Agile is carved in stone. And, and you've hit onto one of the things I, I kind of had a rant on our first time around, <laughs> is I don't like scrum. Right. I don't like prescriptive frameworks that say you must do this, you have to have a product owner, you have to have this time box that's two weeks, and you have to deliver... Quality, uh, an increment every time um, and I especially don't like things like safe and less mm-hmm. which are frameworks for scaling scrum and scaling agile up to organizations of tens of thousands of people right. and they absolutely terrify me um, so I'm probably what you call agile agnostic right there's some good tools there mm-hmm. use, use what works if it doesn't work throw it away Mm-hmm. And and even in the classes I was taking uh, towards my Scrum Master Certified, um, there was a discussion of this is how it's all laid out, and this is what is officially Scrum. And I just use air quotes. I don't know if you could see that on the camera. Uh, I know the people at home couldn't see that on the camera. <laughs> but you should feel free to pitch out things that aren't working. 
right? Because all in, in the end, it's just a framework and you don't have to use every piece of a framework. Yeah, and it, it's really good to start off. It gives you a good starting place. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I won't be mean about Scrum anymore. It gives <laughs> you a good starting place when you don't know what's going on and what the tools do. Right. And then it gives you room to say, okay, hang on, let's try this thing. Mm-hmm. Let's try this. Uh, what I will say is the one thing you shouldn't throw is a retrospective. No, absolutely That's not. Good. If you're if you're not constantly looking at what's going on, how to improve, how how things are being blocked, and how to improve the system you work in, mm-hmm. then you're not going to do anything to make it better. Yeah, uh, we had a, a concept at my last job uh, called the uh, blameless uh, root cause analysis, the blameless RCA. And part of that was getting everybody in a room, uh, not just the the group that necessarily had the failure or was responsible directly for fixing it, but to go over the entire impact from uh, when we detect when it when a problem was detected to when it was considered completely fixed, and all of the groups, any actions needed to be taken by all of the groups involved from uh, the, the customer support team notifying people, uh, customers sooner that there's a problem to any engineering fixes that had to go in to uh, uh, operations building more monitors or tuning monitoring systems to better detect things or prevent things in the future. And rather than have it focus on, well, it's this person's fault, right? Or it's uh, because ops did a thing ops is to blame it was much more of a because ops did a thing here's the impact it had and here's how as a group we're going to address it and make sure it doesn't happen again and funny enough that's something we were just talking about today um talking about how aviation metaphors and how airlines and pilots deal with failure Mm -hmm. feeds into that so if you look at when a plane goes down or when an accident happens, how CAA and FAA try to deal with that, it's not about taking the pilot up and everyone up and saying what went wrong. Right. It's about looking at what happened, how we can fix it, and how we can put things in a checklist so it doesn't happen again. Yeah, and the, the media wants a single point of blame. They want to be able to say the pilot was at fault, right? Or this person is a horrible monster because... They let this happen, and oftentimes it isn't just one person's fault. It's a, it's a systemic failure. Yeah, and you can fix the system. You if you sorry, if you don't fix the system, then the failure will happen again and again, and you just run out of people to blame after a while. Right, right, and and we talked a lot in the prior interview about um, the toxicity of that sort of workplace. Um, which, uh, you know, where if there's if it's always someone's fault, a per, a person's fault, that you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be hammering on a person for a particular fault. If you should be, uh, um, and and we'll talk more about this when we talk about uh, um, systems and habits. I'm sure, but that you need to be talking to each other. Yeah. So that was yeah one of the things we talked about is that without open and honest communication at all points, um, you're going to bring these failures in. The The hardest thing in a company to do is learn to trust 
a bunch of relative strangers, right? Especially when you start off with what's going to be, you know, your livelihood, your addiction to food and water, <laughs> yes, and living space. It's the only way you can build up that trust is by constantly talking. Yeah, and it's terrifying for engineers because no one wants to take their headphones off and start talking. I'd rather look at this code. Right. Um, I, I gotta say, um, uh, one of the things that we uh, really improved our communication was actually implementing um, uh, a a group chat that actually worked because we were a distributed team at one of my prior jobs, and so like operations had their thing how they how they communicated and engineering had their thing where they communicated and marketing and customer support had a whole other thing and uh, we made a strategic decision to say we're going to implement slack and that got us all talking to each other because instead of having to say, well, if I want to ask the engineers a question, they want me to get on hip chat. And if I need to talk to customer success, I need to be using Skype for business. And I don't even know what sales wants us to use and things like that. Suddenly we were all in the same place and it, it opened those channels up. Um, especially since we were a distributed team. So now our London office could talk to developers in the Seattle office so much easier. That, that's one thing that's really hard to keep going with mm -hmm. a distributed team. Yes, yeah. the, the water cooler moment. You know, you, you come in, you have a coffee, you have a chat with people you would never talk to in your day-to-day -day work. Right. And, and so, uh, we had social channels just for that sort of thing. We had a, a channel set aside for just talking about music, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I, it's super important. Yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of companies just think, no, the business chat should be just business and, and this. But if you're working on a distributed team, you need to be able to have those interactions. Yeah. And the hardest part in any job is getting used to this weird and wacky organism that is the company. Right. Uh, very much so. Um, and uh, and now now we're divulging away back. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull us back in with the with the, how do you keep yourself and your team organized? And we talked about um, keeping the team organized and keeping the company organized because they're kind of um, interrelated. Uh, but one of the things I found interesting was that when it comes to your personal organization, it's very different. Yeah. So I suffer from, from the Irish mother syndrome in that I'll make sure everyone else is okay and then forget myself. Right. So I'm really, really good at giving advice. Some of it's useful even. I'm really, really bad at taking what I say. And um, as someone who is apparently uh, an amateur advice giver on the internet now, I, I find the same thing. Uh, one of the most valuable things I did uh, when going through all the experiments with Ursula earlier on in the first year, I guess, was trying some of the things I was recommending to her myself or, or trying them over again because I hadn't done them in years and years and years. Um, but... Um, no, it's, it's very common. It's the shoemaker's children problem. Shoemaker's children doesn't have any shoes. Um, okay. yeah, I've never... yeah, I, that may be an Americanism. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like the term Irish mother problem <laughs> too busy taking care of everyone else to take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you were saying you keep things in lists. So, yeah, I've. So I used to keep everything in my head. 
um, when it was just me and I was working on small things, that was easy. Mm-hmm. And as the number of people I have to work with grows, um, I find out that there's not much space in my head for all of this. So uh, Sublime Edit is my brain. I mm-hmm. keep a lot of stuff there. Everything is bulleted lists or marked down. And there's about 15 tabs of stuff I'm either thinking about or stuff I have to keep on track. And everything is in there. And if I ever lose that laptop, I'm dead. And right. I should probably actually upload that stuff to a Git, a Git repository somewhere just so it's backed up and restored. Yeah, backups are important. They're huge, very important. Yep. Mm-hmm. Terrible at that as well. <laughs> at least personal backups. Yeah. Um, I I've, I use a uh, an open source tool called SyncThing, which keeps it which syncs directories between multiple computers that you own. There's no cloud storage or third party involved, and I try to keep all my lists like that uh, in one of those folders, so that I know if something bad happens to a laptop, the data is still somewhere else. Um, I actually saved my butt with that. Um, when I accidentally deleted my home directory trying to do some encryption stuff on uh, my last work laptop. And what should have been days and days and days of recovery, uh, I was just like, okay, it's gone. Bring up SyncThing and, you know, reinstall SyncThing, get everything, uh, all the dependencies needed, and then, okay, this directory, this directory, this directory, and oh, look, there's everything. You know, I think I lost a couple scripts that hadn't been committed to Git yet that were trivial. So, but yeah, no, do that backup. You will thank yourself later. Yeah. <laughs> Which means everything's going to collapse tonight. Well, yeah. Delay, and it's going to be too late because that's how the universe works. <laughs> uh, indeed. Um, and uh, you also said you, you, you're one of the Excel people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Excel. I use Excel for fun. I do. I'm the sort of person, I have a, a burn down chart in Excel for the books I need to read. Oh, the that's... Books I'm going to read. That's, uh, yeah. That's much easier than the folder on my Kindle that says, um, read next. Which yeah. has about 40 things in it right now. Okay. I, I feel really bad now. I think my backlog is 320. Oh, that's just the things on my on my uh, on my Kindle. Um, oh yeah, that, that's just on my Kindle. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a problem. Yeah, no, I, no. I think I need to be ill for a long time just to catch up. Uh, Hugo season is terrible for me because oh, I, I, yeah. I I have to stop everything and and go read and sometimes it's things I already read, but often it's things I meant to read. Now it's like, well, instead of getting to that after these other five, I got to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, so there's that, and yeah. now, and then the, the other thing I think we talked about was we use Utrack, and I complain a lot to the entire company. Mm-hmm. It's not a huge company, but I complain a lot everywhere where I can, um, about people not using Utrack and not putting stuff in there. And we pay money for this tool, mm-hmm. it's for organizing your work. Why not use it? Stop putting stuff into SharePoint, just do it there. Yep. I've started and I have a small project with stuff that I know is going to come up at some time in the future and it's for more strategic things that we should do when I have time to get out of the weeds. 
to put stuff in there and track it that way. Right. Uh, I believe the term that is is commonly used is dog fooding. We eat our own dog food. Yeah. Although at, at one company it was uh, we drink our own Kool Aid, which is a reference to the um, uh, to to Jim Jones, which I found to be a rather <laughs> grim. Very grim. Yes. Did you drink the Kool Aid? I no. Wait. I don't like. Th- I'm concerned about this reference. Um. Um. But all yeah, of this. I, I would use that one because yeah, I tend to go quite grim. Yeah. Um, <laughs> With most things. <laughs> um. But I, I guess the purpose of all of this is to to break your work down into smaller pieces. Yeah. Ultimately. Um. Mm-hmm. There is a lot to do. There's a, everyone has a lot to do everywhere and if you look at this just huge amorphous blob that is everything that needs to be done to make life happy it's terrifying oh uh, yeah so yeah the, the phrase is usually how do you eat an elephant mm-hmm. and it's one bite at a time yep. so it's easier if you break your work down and all of this work which you know could be a ticket that would say fix all of the systems in the company You'd have to break it down into tiny things like fix this little thing that's broken, fix this other little thing that's broken. And a lot, a lot of it comes from, um, is it Goldratt's book, The Goal, mm-hmm. which was rewritten as, uh, it's it's unfair to say rewritten, but it was reimagined as The Phoenix Project, which is a book people will probably know about if you work in IT. It's, it's one of my favorite books. Uh, anytime I find someone who is not, who who doesn't get the the agile concepts or doesn't understand the I'm gonna use a term here so and I I I know the philosophy of DevOps since DevOps is much more a philosophy than a toolkit um, that they need to read the Phoenix Project first. Yeah, and it's really good. It's written as a novel. Yeah, it's a little bit cringy because it's a business book pretending to, it's a novel pretending to be a business book or the other <laughs> way around, whatever way it is. Um, but ultimately what it says is, you know, think of all of your work, like you're on a factory floor. If yeah. you're trying to build one automobile at a time, you're going to get like a couple of cars out a year. And while that'd be really expensive cars, you're building Tesla's, you're not going to make a fortune. If you want to do this, you break it down like Ford and you do small pieces, get them out, get them out and get them checked and just keep going. And and uh, in one of my courses back in the day when I was doing formal schooling and thinking about actually getting a bachelor's degree, um, for those at home who don't know, I have a high school diploma and that's it um, and some professional certifications. Um, but uh, I took a, a of course, and one of the things they talked about was um, the just-in-time model of building things or supplying things. Uh, Ford, who you know does has that sort of a concept of instead of five people focusing on one big thing, you've got a whole bunch of people focusing on little things down that line, and then you get to GM, who not only has the same process on the the here's a person who does just this one little thing. And so it's one little change that builds to a big thing, but they also um, reuse things very well. So anytime you buy a general motors car of a certain year, it's probably going to use the same uh, distributor as every other GM car that year. Right. So that now uh, they're actually reusing all of, all of that effort into designing the perfect, most efficient 
uh, distributor and instead of saying, well, it's just this one car and that car's a one-off and we'll design a whole new distributor for the other car coming off, um, everybody's using the same distributor. So it's really easy to create new things by reusing uh, things they've already built. Yeah, and I mean, that's part of, again, object orientation and mm-hmm. other programming ways of doing this. You don't, you, you're not, you're not carving a statue. You're building blocks and putting Lego together. And that's the efficient and safer way of making software. Yep. Does it does it drive you as crazy as it drives me when someone says, well, I don't really trust how the other people are doing it, so we're just going to write our own from scratch? Oh, um, I've got to lie down or yell at something. Yeah. yeah. Um, Uninvented here syndrome is just endemic, and I hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also had one where it was, well, we tried these five products, and none of them did the exact specific thing we wanted um each of them did some of it none of them did all of it so we're just going to write our own because that's the only way to get the exact thing we want and i i wanted to claw my eyes out yeah um and it's a hard thing for engineers to do as well mm -hmm. to not be perfect and to to realize it's okay to not be perfect as long as you get 80 percent of what you want that's a success minimum viable product people (laughs) (laughs) uh it's that's a a, uh sort of an agile joke one of the things is that uh the goal with with agile is not to ship a giant thing that is perfect in every way it is to build the functionality to get a the minimum of what you want so that you can get that out the door so you can start building on top of it uh because if you try to build one big thing and release it um uh, games are the best illustration of that, right? Before we had internet-connected consoles, um, a game shipped when it had no bugs or it had as few bugs as they could get away with and and because they would never be able to change it or update it. And Yeah, and then you've got the opposite. The game comes out and the first, the first level you play is always the giant loading screen that takes <laughs> 700 gigabytes from the internet. Right, because it's all the updates of things since they, they're like, well, we have a release date, there it goes, and now here's all the fixes we need to put out for it. Um, yep. <laughs> or all the media they couldn't fit on the DVD. Oh, no, they just sell that. That's DLC. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I've gone uh, to the dark side now. There we go, yeah. All right, let's right, let's, we'll, we'll pull it back in. Um so uh, you also talked about using the Emergent Task Planner at one point. Right. So we were talking about habits and how to keep organized. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to see where my time goes. I felt extremely busy, but not incredibly productive. So I started using the Emergency Task Planner just mm-hmm. to see where it goes every 15 minutes, write down what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I was getting interrupted every 15 minutes which was crazy. Yeah. And the interruptions were useful. So that let me know that it's time to anything that involves a lot of concentration. It's time to let someone else do mm-hmm. and just cope with the interruptions and deal with that. And while it's not fun, it's probably better for the team in that way. Yeah. Uh, one of the things uh, I had talked about in our last discussion was I had a team member who had to do that sort of thought intensive thing. He's our network engineer. Um, and to prevent interruptions, he had uh, bought a Blink 
which is a little tiny USB LED controlled light. He mounted it at his cubicle and started to implement uh, a Pomodoro. So he would say, I'm doing, I'm doing pomos, tomatoes, um, blocks of time. And if it's red, I can be, I'm, I'm involved in something. And, uh, it's, that's a do not disturb light. If it's green, it's okay to interrupt me. And if it's, uh, blue, I, I'm taking a break or, or something like that. I'll be, you know, I'll be back and so much. And that was, it was sort of like that was the only way he could gatekeep people from walking up and going, Hey, man, can you help me with, something completely unrelated to the firewall rules he's trying to craft and it's going to take him three hours. Right. Um, yeah. And talked about how, you know, a five minute interruption can be about an hour's worth of lost work. Because right. It takes so much time to switch all of that stuff back in. Or at first it takes time to, to switch off. You can toss it out really easily, but yeah, it, I think for every five, every uh, five minute interruption is uh, 15 minutes of trying to refocus on what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which is which is important to know and important to remind people of how disruptive those sorts of interruptions are, right? And how hard being an interrupt-driven or a reactive organization is on your people. Yeah, because once you're once you're in the weeds mm-hmm. all of the time, reacting, 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 you don't have time to kind of come back up and see where we're going next because right. you're always far reacting. Yeah, um, uh, I was talking to. Um, uh, Chris Shiner, um, and he was talking, we were talking about, uh, ADHD for everybody at home. You heard this last week, Damien, you get to hear it in about a month because it's the interview that's going to air before the one we're recording right now. Um, but, uh, it was, uh, that he tends to get the, the hyper-focus portion of, um, uh, of ADHD so that he can't, he has, he, he has to make that effort to see the bigger picture. I asked if it was, he can't see the forest for the trees. He's more like, I can't see the forest for the bark. <laughs> yeah. Right. But that's, it, it, it's really tricky. Yeah. 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 Um, so, all right. So I think we've strayed a little bit from how do you keep yourself organized into the, what system and habits are valuable to you? <laughs> Starting with breaking work into smaller pieces. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've covered lists, lists mm-hmm. everywhere. Yep. Um, I used to hate checklists. I used to think they were childish. Mm-hmm. And then I got some real work. And now checklists are the only things that will save anything. Yeah. So keeping this stuff down. Mm-hmm. Um, checklists are good as well if you want to automate anything. Yep. So... You start off with a checklist, then start building automation around it. Oh, yeah. Here's the pro. You have to figure out step by step what a process is before you can implement automation to make so that you don't have to do it by hand every time. And again, we're getting into systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And if you want to try and improve anything or try and keep a handle on an organization of something that's bigger than a person, you have to map out the land. Absolutely. So you have to yeah. map out how it's currently working, mm-hmm. and that will give you the way to kind of figure out where it's broken, where you need to fix things next. Yeah. Um, I think I read I read another business book disguised as a novel about um, critical chain, and I'll look the title up later. Um, talk- oh, that's, that's the same guy who wrote The Goal. Okay, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I recommend this, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was a... Um, 
it was very dry because it was about uh, project managers basically learning how to be better project managers. But one of the things it talked about was how these processes are all a big chain. And uh, I think, yeah, uh, and they talk about that also in, in the Phoenix project, that a slowdown in one, in one link, in one step of the process slows down the whole thing. And it's finding those critical points where those slowdowns can have the, the biggest um, impact and uh, either fixing it or preventing it so that the whole system runs smoothly. Yeah, and this whole thing about you can do all sorts of work to improve anything, but if you're not working on the constraint in the system, like the slowest part, right, it's wasted. Yes. You, you can have the best developers in the world, but if you can't ship that stuff, nothing's going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. You know, if you if you ship the stuff really easy, but it's broken, you know, you, you're not getting anything, any value mm-hmm. whatsoever. And And it, it even comes down to um, sometimes uh, the constraints are outside your control. Um, in uh, my prior job, sometimes the constraint was literally how fast you could write something to disk. Um, yep. And sometimes there are things you can do to fax- fix that, like don't write so much to disk or don't write to the same disk you're trying to, to uh, use to load the program. Um, move the database so that it's on a different machine than the web app. Um, and sometimes there's just nothing you can do except change the program so it it so that it adapts for or recognizes that this is going to be a problem and we need to we need to understand that this constraint is in place and work around it. So uh, CRO current company tells a he likes to tell a funny story. Um, in one of his previous companies. Uh, the person who did all the accounting and got all of the money in to keep the company going mm-hmm. had an incredibly slow computer and the throughput of what that person could get done in a day was mm-hmm. abysmal. So they made the change of giving that person a better computer mm-hmm. doubled the throughput of the company and actually made twice as much money just because they could send out more and more bills. They could get, they get the invoices out, yeah. The constraint is not necessarily where you think it is, and it could be something really simple, mm-hmm. like you know, spending an extra two hundred dollars on a computer. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in one case, I was managing systems for a piece of software that was very memory intensive, and the constraint was how much was literally physically how much memory could be on a box, and uh, as represented by Java Heap. And uh, as anyone who's developed in Java knows, and the rest of us probably don't, is the bigger the memory allocated to Java, the longer it takes to clean it back out when it does what's called garbage collection. And so we'd get into a situation where it couldn't do a full garbage collection before the next one would start and it would get locked up. So the we had to actually implement a constraint of we can't go past a certain boundary in memory because if we do, then it's impossible for the program to function. Right, so sometimes adding a constraint actually helps rather than hurts. Yeah, I, it's it's a way of thinking. Yeah, it's kind of trying to think outside your own area of expertise mm-hmm. and try and see how what you do at any one time will affect affect the entire company. Yep, 
Yeah, and just making it, that change suddenly changed all of our capital expenses because we didn't have to continually buy bigger machines. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then suddenly the budgets are easier. Yep. You're spending less money, you don't have to look after so many machines. And well, actually, it, what it meant was we could then implement virtualization, which meant that instead mm-hmm. of having to have one machine per customer, we could have 5, 10, 16 customers on a really, really big machine. Um, which was a big change from, you know, we can have two because otherwise their memory clashes with each other. You know, um, again, though, efficient use of resources by looking at the system, not at an individual problem. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so, so uh, systems and habits, valuable uh, system thinking, breaking work into smaller pieces. And then we spent a lot of time last time talking about communication because you had said that communication is one of the hardest things and the most valuable things that you can do as a release manager, but the teams can do among themselves. Yeah, so a lot of time, especially in tech companies, you get people trying to come up with technical ways of solving a problem they see. Right. So an example would be, oh, developers don't put good QA notes on their on their tickets. Can we put some sort of weird script in that would stop them being able to submit them for QA if they don't? Right. And that's a technological <laughs> that's a technological solution to a problem that's basically Go talk to the person who sits three seats down and mm-hmm. ask them what the thing is to do. Document it together. Put it in the ticket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and if if this is a a singular person who's consistently having that issue, maybe uh, if it is recurring, you go the two of you go talk to um, either their manager or your manager about why this isn't working and maybe how to do it better, versus punishing the whole team and saying, "All right, because." Because one person can't seem to get this, now we're going to force everybody to do it a specific way. Yeah. And yeah, again, most problems, if not all of them, can be solved by fixing the system everyone's in. Right. I don't think people are inherently out to break things. Yeah. Okay. There's 10% of the population that skew towards negative personality traits. Right. But most people in most organizations, just want to get things done. And and the people who feel this uh, obscene urge just to break everything, maybe they need jobs in QA. Yeah. <laughs> most most fun I had was doing hardware verification. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing you talked about with, with communication uh, was um, uh, what you called watermelon projects. Yeah, okay. So another thing that I've seen with people failing to communicate is that they're afraid to say things are going wrong because they, or they'll be punished for it. So they'll leave, you know, walk around going, yeah, my project is green. My project is green, don't worry, until the problems build up and build up and then suddenly the project is red overnight. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the, the phrase that I've heard recently is they're watermelon projects. Yeah. They're green on the outside, red on the inside, and no one knows until the last minute. When you open it up and you suddenly have to see what's inside that, oh God, it's all red. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and Whereas, communicating early on can prevent that. Well, it's like um, if you when you're going off course in a plane, I, I do lots of metaphors. We'll just have to deal with it. That's fine. That's you're fine. going off course in a plane. Um, is it easier to kind of make a small correction and get back on course? So every few minutes, or do you wait until you've become like 300 miles off course and then try and go back up the other side of the triangle? And from a from a uh, again from an efficiency standpoint, you know, airplanes have the constraint of how much fuel they have. And if you're 300 miles off course and, you know, you're like a long haul, like you're going from, say, Raleigh to to uh, uh, Heathrow, um, that 300 miles is a lot of fuel. And now suddenly you may not be able to get there. Yeah. And you'll crash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you could have fixed it by just making little adjustments 300 miles ago. And again, that kind of feeds into the, the small batch sizes. Mm -hmm. Do little things. If you do small things often, you can correct a lot easier instead mm -hmm. of doing a giant project that you only know if it works at the very end or not. Mm -hmm. And and talk through the and, and keep those lines of communication going the entire time so that no one gets caught off guard if something needs to be adjusted. And not just within within the team, between teams and between departments. And uh, I think the healthier companies and the, the companies that are always held up as these are the good places to work are those places where people talk all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had we had talked about um, when when implementing Agile because uh, I've been in transitional companies and you've done it at several times um, that it isn't just if when when doing it you can't do it with just just engineering is going to be Agile now it's it's a an organization wide thing it's that because the a change to how engineering does things is going to impact things from support to finance to the executive level. So the whole company has to embrace that. And that makes it really difficult sometimes. Well, yeah, every time. If you think about it, engineering says, okay, yeah, we're going we're gonna to release more often. We're releasing every two weeks. Mm -hmm. And the, the poor group of support people are like, hang on, our support matrix is going to go up by 12 how are we going to support all these various versions in the wild? Right. Yeah. And then marketing's going, hang on, we have a cadence for these things. Our customers don't want to take it at this level. And all these things build up. Again, systems thinking. Every small change has an effect across an entire system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, one of the nice things, I think, about the small incremental changes is it actually makes that easier when you're talking to supporter finance to say, hey, you know, here's a little change that's going to improve all of all of this stuff for your customers, or not finance, uh, to support all of the customers. Um, but uh, again, you're right, the danger is there that instead of having one version to support, they're going to have 50. Um, and at one of my prior companies, we had that problem, and there was a very large effort being made to get um, everyone, like the entire, every customer we had, onto within a, a range of um you know the prior version the current version or the newest you know the the uh, or the newest version so that and we were tracking metrics along okay how many people are behind what is considered current and then uh as we start to deploy the next version you know what's the what's the path look like how many people are still four revs back versus one rev back versus current and a big effort was made to start shortening that gap and that 
and that um, that support burden, right? And it's a hard thing to do, and it took everybody in the company um, to be able to do it from the the salespeople and the customer management people to talking to the customers to explain what the value is here and, and why we're doing it and build those expectations to support being able to stop supporting things and be able to support the new things because they're not supporting 50 old versions. Right. Uh, but it was hard. It was hard. Yeah. And, and it took us uh, two or three years to get to a point where on average we would have um, current, current minus one and current minus two only. And it does involve the entire company, all the way through from sales to the whole senior management team, because you have to persuade your customers to do what you want and what's good for you. Right. It's not necessarily good for them. Not always. Yeah. And, you know, there are conversations to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, uh, we were fortunate that most of our customers were very happy because it meant that some of them were on the old versions and had that inertia built up, had been dealing with bugs that we literally couldn't fix without upgrading. Right. I don't know why the dog is going off. It's just, it's bark a clock, I guess. Um, <laughs> and that leads us into um, uh, much more into um, the best advice or feedback you've been given. Um, so why don't we do that one first, and then we'll come back on how you decide what to do first on a given day. Sure. Yep. So the best feedback I think I've ever gotten was... Um, it's okay not to be perfect and not to try and do everything at the one time. Right. It's incredibly hard to do though, especially for someone who doesn't like failure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think your exact quote was, uh, um, if you make yourself the hero, you will always be the hero and all heroes uh, die. Uh, that's stage two yeah that's stage two okay um oh no wait wait i think the first one is if you don't have to fix every you don't have to fix everything yourself you have to let other people fail yeah and part of that is letting yourself fail too yeah yeah because if you don't fail then no one is ever going to try and pick this stuff up because we're all busy everyone's Mm -hmm. super busy and no one's going to try and volunteer for work if they can help it Mm -hmm. um you know, if if you're going around solving everyone's problems, and that speaks to the hero part, right? You're going to left there, let be left there to flame out like most superheroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, while while the compelling, while the that hero's journey arc of the hero fails and then rebuilds themselves and comes back and saves the day for everyone, is um, is a good story. It's hell to live. Yeah, and it doesn't work for people. We're people, not stories. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so yeah, and um, I think there's a, a lot to be a lot to be said on the um, you have to let other people fail portion of this, um, because if you don't let other people fail, they don't have an opportunity to grow. Yeah, and it, it is really really hard, and it's something I struggle with mm-hmm. a lot to try and look at failure as an opportunity and it's a lesson learning thing it's not about you are a bad person and you will never ever get an opportunity again that's what the, so it, it is really hard to reframe that right and i struggle with it all the time 
I I'm in my I don't know what number of you know uh, uh, job hunts this time around, right? And yeah, um, it's not easy. And I know there are going to be times when I'm not going to get. I'm going to uh, try to get something, or I'm going to apply for something, and I'm not going to get it. Um, and someone else might get it, or maybe, um, you know, anytime I don't do something, uh, I think it was my cousin Susan who said this one, uh, something to this effect is when I don't do something, it's an opportunity for someone else, right? By trying to be the hero, I'm taking away opportunities for other people. It's mm, a really good way of putting it. Yeah. 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 Um, all right, let's loop back now and talk about how you decided what what you decide to do first on a given day. So, I'm terrible. I do what you're not supposed to do. I read email first. I usually read email before I even get out of bed. Oh, so I know. Just to get it, I won't get into a whole loop of replying to it, but I want to have an idea of what's coming before I get in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I do try and keep things at least a little bit structured. So go through email first thing, Mm -hmm. go through tickets, look at what's broken and what's going on, and if anything needs to be done urgently, and get that out of the way. Because pretty much after about 10 o'clock, the day is gone. It just becomes like a soup of people and things and just getting on with it. And, 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 and... That's, I mean, it's like you're building a routine around that. And I think that's really the important takeaway is that you've got that routine of, okay, the first thing I do is I check my email. Uh, Maybe I'm checking at the wrong time, but I'm checking my email first. Then I'm, you know, looking at the tickets because I know at a certain point in the day, everything's going to go straight to hell. And this is, well, I mean, I've started using Habitica just for this reason. (laughs) And it's not because I like going on quests, honest. Uh, you know, I, I started there as well, and then I found myself going, well, you know, if I can get everything done today, I maybe will have, I, I can, you know, and we finish this thing, I'll, I'll be able to get three more pets. And um, uh, I'm at that, I've, I've reached the point where I'm just like, I'm trying to get one of everything. And it's, and that's part of the feedback loop of why do I make sure I, you know, why do I have a thing on there for feeding the chickens, which I'm reasonably sure I'm going to do every day. Um, but I've also got a thing on there for, you know, take your pills, take your morning pills, take your night pills, right? Things that I need to remember to do um, just to make sure I do them. So there are a couple of things that are my downfall. If there's a progress bar, I need to get it to hundred percent. Oh, and yeah. if there are awards and badges, I want them all. <laughs> so I kind of game myself with these things. They like, <laughs> need to do this every day. I'm going to stick a progress bar and I'm going to click the thing, make it go towards 100% and get that dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. So I take it you're one of the people who collects the uh, Productivity Alchemy o- Open badges as well? Yeah, they are like crack cocaine to me. Well then, uh, when we're done with this, I'll give you the the, the <laughs> special code for "I was a guest." That's the only reason I'm doing this. <laughs> nice. Now, now I feel. Now I know I've done something good by doing the patches. <laughs> um. Uh. 
but uh but going back to it routines are really important i i don't think a lot of i think a lot of people kind of poo poo the idea of of routine they want to make it something formal when really often it's not it's knowing where you what no yeah knowing what's going to happen at any time mm-hmm. is really useful when things start going south you kind of have to build up this scaffold of safety around you. Mm-hmm. And safety is a really important thing that kind of ties into when I talk about communication, it's about feeling safe, mm-hmm. feeling that everyone's got your back and a routine helps with that. Yeah. And all of this stuff helps avoid burnout. Yeah. And, and as someone who's, who's burned out more than once, um, I think I was talking I, again, when I was talking to um, Chris, I think it was uh, that uh, burnout is is not something you ever a hundred percent get over. It's it's much more of a um, it can go it, to use the cancer metaphor I used in the interview, and I feel so terrible using it because the only one I could come up with it goes into remission, but it's never really gone, right? And so you you the the things like a, a good routine is a scaffolding to help prevent it from happening again. Yep. Yep. And it's it's part of the looking after yourself, putting your own mask on, mm-hmm. which I've already admitted I'm terrible at, and I know it. I'm a bad person. <laughs> that, that's all right. Um, yep. uh, so am I. Okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll own that. It's it's not a big thing. Um, okay, so that takes us down to the last two questions. And when we did this the first time, you decided to go with the sad slash easy question first, which is... Um, how do you do with, how do you deal with failure or, um, when you miss a goal? So, yeah, the, the short answer is I try very hard and do this reframing, say failure is an opportunity and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I fail at that too. Right. So then I beat myself up and Mm -hmm. I still wake up screaming in the middle of the night about things that happened when I was 10. Mm -hmm. But. What I found is, as I got older, mm-hmm. I really stopped caring so much. And I'm really looking forward to when I turn 80, and it's like, I don't care about anything. I'm going down the road in my pants, you know? Yeah, I uh, that I, I embarrassed myself when I was 16. Who cares? I How much more embarrassed can I be at 95 years old? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, uh Completely off subject. Uh, my, my Ursula's um, stepfather is turning... I think he just turned like 82. And uh, as I like to say, he he taught the hippies how to smoke dope back in the 60s. Um and he used to he used to be like how can people wake and bake? You know, how can these kids get up in the morning, smoke weed and then do things? Well, about the time he hit 70, he's like, "I'm 70. Who gives a shit?" <laughs> right? I want to be 70 and going, "Who gives a shit?" because <laughs> at 40 something it's really sometimes you, you do have to worry about who gives a shit not a good thing um, occasionally yeah occasionally yeah <laughs> all right now uh, the hard question and or the fun question is do you celebrate success and if so how and i loved your answer to this last time so yeah um it's incredibly hard especially for some of the group in the 80s in ireland there was mm-hmm. an awful lot of you don't brag about stuff. You you have ideas above your station. Mm-hmm. We call it no having notions. Um, <laughs> yes, so it I'm makes familiar. it really hard to you know celebrate your success. Mm-hmm. 
But what I do is whenever a little thing goes well, mm-hmm. I write it in what I call a victory log and just leave it there. Even if it feels bad to write it, you know, I'm you know, having notions or whatever, leave it there and then come back to it when things are bad. Because you come back to it when things are bad. If it's written down, you don't have all of the tricks your brain plays on you when you're feeling bad that just turns everything black and white. And I, I love this idea. Um, and it, it's something that I think I might, I'm probably going to start trying to do because it's really easy to forget those victories or let them be transient, uh, before you go back to, um, the, the bad stuff. Um, uh, I think it was a really horrible thing about your brain is that mm-hmm. your memories are tied to your emotional state. Right. So when you're feeling down, all you remember are the other memories that happened last time you're feeling down. And it's really hard to kind of get those good things back in your head. Yeah. Um, I think it was uh, on this week's show, because we're recording this um, on the 5th of October. And so um, on this week's show, Ursula was talking about how, you know, she just finished a book and she's like, oh, I, I feel kind of bad about it. Now what am I going to do? And then we started doing the math and she has written in the past 10 years, 30 books. Wow. Right. Um, or, or, uh, or no, she's 20 since Nurk was released 30 overall. Right. And, and I'm like, you know, I no, finishing a book is a big deal and a big accomplishment. And, you know, if you, and look at how, and we were talking about how it adds up. Um, and writing a book is eating an elephant because she has to, she can't write, she can't just sit down and whip out 150,000 words in a sitting. She has to do a thousand words here, a thousand words there. Right. Yeah. But it, and when, you're, when you're doing that, it's really, really hard to kind of just look up for a second. When mm-hmm. you're down there fighting, you're trying to get through this huge project. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to kind of look up and look behind and see where you've come. And sometimes when you're in the middle of that project, you're like, I'm never going to do this, right? Or I'm never going to be able to, to, to finish X. If you've got that victory log, if you've got the ability to go back and say, well, actually, yeah, no, you've done this before. Look how good you've done before. You can do it again. Mm. You don't have to do better the second time around. You can meet the, there, there's a thing about meeting or exceeding your own expectations. If you just meeting them is a victory and write that down on the log. Yeah, and it's it's the little things mm-hmm. that help. It's not all about being, again, not being a hero. We're not fighting dragons. Right. It's just getting through a day. That can be a victory. And I've had days like that recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we all do, and we all will again. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's part of being human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some days the victory log is I got out of bed. Yeah. Right. And write it down. And write it down, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's everything. Um, there is so much, I'm sorry we lost in the other discussion because I forgot to verify that I had actually started recording. So that's on me. Um, system failure and a place for me to implement a checklist now, a pre-record checklist, um, which I hadn't done before. And so now it's something I'm, uh, let me flip back to my bullet journal and cause I've got my journal right here. Um, build... See, I'm, this way I'll make sure I do it, right? Pre-interview checklist. Um, 
And that goes in with all of the other, with the, the rest of the checklist I have on any other, any production, because I have a whole, I, I have Habitica tasks that happen weekly for record this part, record that part, you know, put it all together, set the release date, all that stuff. So now, now I build a checklist for what to do before, during, and after an interview to make sure I don't forget something like pushing record next time. <laughs> You know, there's a lot we can learn from the aviation industry. Yeah, it really is. I never thought I'd say that in my lifetime, but, you know, checklists. Like, say the phrase, I have control. Uh, yeah. When you've got multiple people on a project. Blameless. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what you call it? Retrospectives. Yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. They're uh, all really useful. Yeah, one of the things I do whenever I'm I'm working security convention, if I'm one of the people in charge, uh, we have you know a rotating shift or a group of people who rotate who are the you know the buck stops here people, the duty officers, um, and one of the things I always log because we keep detailed logs is that uh, you know I have the con, um, I you know I'm the person who's now on duty and I am now off con and I've handed off to whoever's next. Right, because if we don't, then we don't have maybe that clear definition in the in the records of who was in charge and ultimately responsible um, when we go back to do our retrospectives. Right. Yeah. So awesome. Um, so where can we find you online, and what things do you want to promote now that we have the opportunity to promote things? <laughs> <laughs> Well, another one, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I do have uh, the Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's at DJ Ryan. Mm-hmm. It's mostly nonsense, a lot of GIFs, and occasional something intelligent, but no, maybe once a year. Um, also, while I have nothing to promote, mm-hmm. the, the company I work for, Future Space, mm-hmm. it's a machine learning fraud detection company. Mm-hmm. We are growing aggressively and hiring and um, we've got offices in cambridge uk london and in atlanta mm-hmm. if anyone w- wants to you know have a look at the website we've got roles we're looking for data scientists we're looking for engineers um please hit us up yep. hiring is hard hiring good people is really hard i i know <laughs> um and finding a good place to work is hard it's it's like being a puppy in a pound. It's those finding the right place that fits mm-hmm. and being the person who fits in that place. It's mm-hmm. difficult. It really I know, I know yeah. searching for a job felt like dating, and it's been a long since I've time since I've dated. I don't like either one. Uh, yeah, and now now that I'm I'm starting to put my feet back into the pool of the job hunt, uh, believe me, uh, I'm probably going to the website and take a look to see if there's anything that fits my needs. So Yeah, Let's yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, thank you so much, Damien, for doing this twice. <laughs> it's hard enough doing it once. Uh, having to do it a second time is is not necessarily easy. Um, so, uh, thank you very much. And for the people at home, we'll be right back.
So we're back. Woo! And it was uh, interesting. Interesting, as I'm looking over my nose, I'm going, crap, the yak shaving discussion was actually with uh, Chris, who we'll have on in about two weeks. Because I'm completely confused. But we still have that concept of the watermelon project. Green on the outside and red on the inside. Is, are, are you sure that's in the interview? I'm staring at it in my notes right now. Okay. So green on the inside, red on the... Uh, uh, or green on the outside, red on the inside. That That's the project manager saying, everything's great, everything's great, until the last possible minute, and then going, it's all on fire, all of our statuses are red, we're not going to make it. It's a terrible thing. And that's going back to what we were saying before the break, before the interview. That's what you want to avoid with your editor. Are we actually recording? Yeah. Oh. See, right oh, there. okay. Yeah. It was all compressed and weird, and I didn't see the thing going, and I didn't get the feedback of my little voice nuggets, and I was like, ah! Here, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll unbiggin. Thank you. I'll unbiggin. There you go. That better? Yes, that's yeah. much better. So that, that's more cromulent. Yeah, we, we've had, we've since we've, before this setup, we had so many issues making sure that recording was or wasn't happening. Now, I am I am now intensely paranoid. Ursula absolutely wants to watch this. Uh, anyway, so, the, mm-hmm. um, but yes, uh, one of my gigs long ago was mm-hmm. doing book covers, and I was not good. I'm I'm going to put that out there. And people are always like, oh, you're selling yourself short. No, look, I have a realistic understanding mm-hmm. and of my work. And compared to now, I was crap on a stick. Compared to a lot of my peers, I was crap on a stick. I was not producing terribly high-quality work. Right. Art directors still bought my stuff. And the reason was they knew exactly what they would get mm-hmm. and they would know I would have it done by deadline. So it's the, the what is it, fast, cheap, good? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I was fast and cheap. And right. I was also reliable. Actually, it's not necessarily fast, cheap, good. I've also heard it as um, under budget, um, on schedule, and, um, and high quality. Uh, pick two. Well, yeah, that's that's yeah, fast, cheap, and good. The same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I will actually also occasionally add pleasant to work with in there, but uh, I was pleasant to work with. I sent a sketch <laughs> at every damn stage. Like I would finish the sketch, I would send it to them. They I they would approve it. I would do. I would paint the background. I would send it to them. They would approve it. They knew exactly where the project was at every single point. Right. Art directors seriously loved that because at least the ones I worked with because they knew it was not going to be the day before and they'd the deadline and they'd just get oh yeah sorry I, I haven't gotten it done and I did occasionally get work on several memorable occasions when mm-hmm. they got that from someone else who was like yeah I haven't done anything and I just you know but hadn't told them and so they had you know, they had to go to pre-press like the next day. I remember you. I remember you actually getting one of those twenty-four hour turnaround on a cover. Yeah, and I told them, "Look, this will not be a work of heartbreaking genius, but it will be done." And, and perfectly happy with that one. Perfectly yes. happy with that one. And yes. the uh, the nice man I did it for has remembered me fondly for many years and thrown work my way and still oh, yeah. says hi to me. Uh, Hi, Russell. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> I was not great, but mm-hmm. I was reliable, and they knew exactly where they were on the project, and right. that made up for a multitude of sins. Art directors would generally rather have a mediocre piece done on time than a brilliant piece a month late. Yeah, especially if you've got 
uh, when you're doing like magazine covers or promo work, like, no, that stuff has to go to press on that date or it doesn't come out. Yeah. You know, and any delay books, I want to say novels, there may be a little more flexibility that doesn't make them happy, but there's a little more squish in the system. And I also think they, yeah, they build more squish into the system, which is why it always weirded out my editors when I handed everything in early at Penguin. They were like, she always makes her deadlines. And I was getting cards saying, to my most timely author. And I'm like, I, I'm starting to feel a little weird about the what, way y'all keep harping on that. Wasn't it Wasn't it that your, uh, your, your agent said to your editor, you don't understand, she just sits at home and writes? Something like yeah. that, yeah. And then, yeah, they... I I had come up in a system with art where if you don't make the deadline, you don't eat. Yeah. And so makes was, that that makes yeah. a big difference. And related to that, one of the things that um the founder of All Things Open was saying yesterday was that those early life experiences stick with you no matter how good your situation gets. He grew up in a coal mining town in West Virginia. He was not wealthy. His dad was a coal miner. And if he hadn't found some things basically on accident, he would have probably ended up being a coal miner because he didn't know what the opportunities were. I've talked to a lot of yeah. people. If you grow up poor, mm -hmm. in your head, you are always poor. Yeah. There is no amount of yeah. money I will ever have where I will not be convinced that it will be taken away from me immediately. Right. And that was one of the things he would say, why he does this big open source conference and does scholarships for underrepresented groups and for people who can't afford it and who are interested in it, because these are the opportunities he wanted when he was younger. And now he's able to give them. Um, Todd is just really guys. If Todd is amazing, I'll link to his stuff too. Um, Incidentally, if, uh, if, you are one of those people who grew up in that situation and have substantial anxiety around money, even when you have a little money. God help you. If you don't, then you have lots of anxiety. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm here. I can tell you, no, it doesn't actually get better. I'm not going to mm. lie. That, that no. I will be anxious about money until I die. Yeah. And... And it's it's an interesting. I hate to have to say that, but them's the breaks. And, and it's an interesting cultural difference because I wasn't in that situation I was much better off, even though I think there were some money struggles behind the scenes. My sister and I never really saw them, yeah. right? And so as far as I knew, we grew up in, in that phase where we started maybe at lower middle class and ended at upper middle class throughout that. And so for me, the... You have this amazing attitude that money will come from somewhere that just baffles right. me. Because I've I've been... So poor, I'm miserable, I'm sitting in my living room, and all I can afford is a loaf of bread and a stick of butter, and that's dinner, right? Mm -hmm. And dug my ass out of it. You know, I, I've done it multiple times, so I guess it says to me it's possible. I'm on easy mode because I'm a straight white male, I will admit that. But uh, well, you know, yeah. I mean, I've I've dug myself out of it too. But mm -hmm. but the difference is that that the the wires in there is not a relaxed about money mode in my brain. Gotcha. You can be either I'm worried about money or I'm not worried about money. I don't have that switch. It uh, is it is welded in one position. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And that that there was a question from from someone online uh, that I'll probably read in full at the letter show. But for now, uh, let's let me roll through this one real quick. And that is. Um, what is the step up from and the step down from the dying in a ditch in Walmart? Ah, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the step up, I believe, is dying in a ditch next to Target. Mm -hmm. And the step down is, uh, I'm going to say, dying in a ditch next to a strip club or a truck stop. 
the truck stop I'll give you. Um, strip club. I mean, now you're now you're slut shaming sex workers. No, I'm not sex <laughs> slut shaming anybody. I'm saying strip clubs tend to be in seedy parts of town and are frequently. Uh, I mean, I've seen some real dive dive strip club exteriors. I, and I have they to. tend to be shunted mm-hmm. to parts of town where the ditches are perhaps not kept up as well. And I've this been... has nothing to do with the people who work there. I salute them. You can do it. I can't. I am in awe of, frankly, your physical skills. Oh, God. Yeah, like the pole, doing the pole tricks and yeah, stuff. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. I know there are classes. I just look at that and like my back is like, I'll go out right now. You want me to go out? I'll go out. Don't right. you look at that. I'll go out. But I, I, I have been to places that are, are upscale and clean and nice. And the, I, I personally believe that strip clubs, uh, get a generally a bad reputation based on, um, having been sort of sent to the pariah side. I've been in some lovely establishments. We went to a lovely establishment. Yes. The women's room was still a pit. There was one stall door on five <laughs> stalls, and you could either have the stall with the door or the stall where the toilet seat had been ripped off and thrown in a corner. So it was so it was like going to the um going to the women's room in the one gay bar they used to have goth night at. Uh no, that was better kept. Okay. The the yes, um the unisex slash women's room was it wasn't the men's room with the bubble wall oh yeah the, the bubble wall and the lighting and the yeah no but uh, and it was a dark hole but it it had a door that closed and there was a seat on the toilet heard it here folks i have not taken ursula to a high enough quality strip strip club apparently uh and i don't think we need to go to a, a different one I, I feel either truck stop, and again, this is mm-hmm. this is no more a slam on strip clubs than it is a slam on truckers. Uh, true. Or uh, strippers than it is a slam on truckers. I, I will say that in the majority when driving, I will stop at a truck stop because sometimes they have the most amazing, like, oh my God, there's this one between here and Charlotte that has the most amazing hot dogs, but I always park in the light. And I always, you know, and, and, you know, I, I don't spend much time there. And that seems to be kind of regular for me in truck stops. Like no matter what state I'm in, no matter where I'm going, unless I go to one of those super duper flying J's with like a mini food court in it, truck stops always seem to be a bit dicey. Yeah. Little. And my experience with strip clubs is similar. They, uh, wonderful people can and do work there. Oh, absolutely. Generally speaking. They are because of their very nature in poorly patrolled, poorly, uh, mm. and that's not police patrol necessarily. That's uh, neighborhood, you know, mm, yeah. groundskeeping, that kind of thing. Not and, that there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, seedy is the word. Seedy is the word you're looking for. Okay, maybe yeah. they are shunted into seedy areas by their nature. There you go. Okay, and. It would be lovely if that was not the case, but it is the case, and I don't want to die in a ditch there. Uh, okay, that's fair. That's yes. fair. So, yeah. that so is taking it full down. circle back to the that's the yes, step down. The step down from Walmart mm-hmm. is a low end strip club. Okay. Or a truck stop. Or a truck stop. Yes. Yeah. The, a non flying J truck stop, probably. Yeah. We were we were talking about um, 
often in IT we talk about, oh yeah, that's a real dumpster fire. Yes. Yes, and we were talking about, we were comparing quality of dumpster fires, and at one point, I, I think someone said, well, yes, it's a dumpster fire, but it's a higher class of dumpster, and I'm like, so it's like the dumpster behind the Waffle House versus the dumpster behind the, you know, the McDonald's. And they're like, yeah, no, because the dumpster behind the Waffle House, they've got a plan for keeping that thing burning in any kind of condition. And I'm like... I would I would say a ditch yeah. next to a Waffle House is a lateral move from a ditch next to Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, gonna... I'm not going to kick it up. No. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to say Waffle House. And I eat at Waffle House. Oh, so yeah, no, we do. That. We do, yeah. But again, yeah. I've seen their ditches. Oh, yeah. 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 But their ditches will work in almost any emergency situation. If it doesn't, then we know there are problems. Yes. Hey, we had the limited menu during the hurricane, which was surprising what they were able to do without. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> if you want, if you want to plan disaster recovery, plan disaster recovery like Walmart. I should. I, I should, you mean Waffle House or Waffle House? Yes, thank you. Yeah, Walmart just shuts down. Um, if you want disaster, if you want to talk about, you know, being able to handle any situation, Waffle House is the master of that. The, their sort of war room with Waffle House execs during a natural disaster is, frankly, infinitely superior to the current one at FEMA and the White House. And I would happily hand it over to the Waffle House people at the moment with the understanding we'll get it back in a few years. Well, the the side effect, and, and I found this out at a talk by my friend VM Brasher, who's got her new book out now. Um, but she, they have, they actually have plan books like in every waffle house that say, okay, if you don't have gas, here are the things you can serve. If you don't have refrigeration, here are the things you can serve. Here's, they have every contingency so that they can stay open unless like everything shuts down and they run out of gas and, and electricity and this and water. They even have a we don't have water. Here is what we can serve. Menu, like limited menu. All My of concern this. is that in order to staff these waffle houses, occasionally uh, people do not evacuate who should because they are told to come to work. They have sleeping arrangements in almost all waffle houses so that if people get stuck there because they came into work and couldn't go home or... Yeah, but that's not the same as my kids. Uh, I have to get my kids out of here. I'm I can't come into work. Well, don't bother coming back when the storm's over. I I do not know about Waffle House's policy on that. I know that there are many there are many places that are just like yeah, don't bother coming back. I don't know what Waffle Houses are, but I seem to recall seeing something in all of those notes of fam. Take care of your family first, and then. Well, if so, mm -hmm. that is that is hopefully true. Yeah. I am thinking of like Dunkin' Donuts was like, oh yeah, you're all going to stay here, and if you aren't, don't come back, and don't have your parents call me because I mean it was mostly hiring kids because yeah, yeah. I'm not hiring your parents, and it was like, okay, you need to have you need to not be running that store, and yeah. you also need to be beaten severely with sticks, uh, and donuts, yeah. and donuts, mm, yeah, donuts. All right, All right well, so, anyway. yeah, that's it for this week. Uh, our badge code this week is watermelon. 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 Uh, for those of you who missed it in past episodes, we issue open badges. These are happy little images that contain metadata that prove where you got it and who you got it from and things like that. And it's used by educational organizations and uh, all kinds of places. And so we issue them because they're fun. Uh, and you just go to the website, you enter in the word watermelon into where it's 
in the little form where it says, you know, put the badge code here and it'll walk you through the process from there. You can support us on Patreon, and I was going to say before earlier today that you could support us on Drip, but they've just announced they're closing Drip down two weeks after I got my invite. Of course. And just oh. after I had finished my uh, thing. So, uh, Drip, we hardly knew ye. Yeah. No. Wow. Uh, okay. You can buy us. Uh, the Patreon is mm-hmm. Ursula V still. Yep. I was. I even had the Drip branded Red Wombat Studio and everything. Uh, easy, easy. Buy Kevin a coffee. Yes, you can buy me a coffee at uh, uh, Kofi K O F I dot com slash K S O N N E Y. And as we say often at this point, um, in this current day and age, you don't actually have to give us money. We would really prefer you go give it to like a get out the vote organization or something that helps people, you know, get to the polls mm-hmm. who may be uh, homebound or something like that. Absolutely. Uh, or to the various legal causes trying to untangle and unlock the mess on our borders with immigrant children. Yes, and uh, so I mean, mm-hmm. we're doing fine. We love it when you support us, yep. but at the moment, we feel like there are things in the world that uh, may need the money more. So, oh yeah, oh, go yeah. forth and do good. And uh, also, while you go forth and do good, be productive. <laughs>